This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have a long-awaited instructor, uh, Taylor Ron, with us. I was looking at our previous podcasts, and I had Taylor on in November of 19, talking about how she was going to be at our Phoenix Hits, and that was in November. And we never, at that time, we had no idea what was going to, what we were uh, going to be seeing in the next few months. So it was before the pandemic, and it was before George Floyd, and the world's changed a lot. And then, of course, uh, our Phoenix hits got canceled several years in a row. So this year, we're going back to Phoenix in August, and uh, Taylor's going to be there instructing for us. So I'm excited to bring her back on. And it's been you know three and three years and a few months, but a lot of things have changed. And because of uh, you know mostly because of the, the uh, legislation that's being proposed after uh, George Floyd and a lot of this uh, social justice stuff, there's proposed legislation. Uh, Taylor's in New Mexico, so I'm going to have her talk about her background a little bit and then talk about some of the the, uh, New Mexico proposed legislation right now and how that's winding its way through and uh, what you see in California, New Mexico, and in my state, Colorado, we had uh, one that went through a couple years ago of, uh, in my, I would call it anti-cop legislation. Um, It's it's stuff to watch for in your own state, and uh, Taylor's been watching it in New Mexico and is going to talk a little bit about that. So without uh, further ado, Taylor, I'm glad to have you back on. I hope you're doing well. Well, thanks, Jeff. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, just by way of a little bit of background, I'm an attorney based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and my practice is around defending the police. And I do that in several different ways. First, uh, you guys probably seen Albuquerque on the news for being a fairly violent city. We have a fair number of officer-involved shootings. And so I represent officers throughout a criminal investigation following any type of deadly force event. Um, It doesn't have to be a deadly, it doesn't have to be the use of deadly force, can be an in-custody. I also represent officers um, where it looks like there might be criminal charges for a non-fatal use of force. Um, So that's kind of the first thing that I do with officers is I'll actually represent them in criminal proceedings. And sometimes they don't turn into full-blown charges. They're just the the investigation itself. Um, And then as some of your listeners have probably also experienced it, when there is a civil lawsuit against the officer and or the department or the city or the town or whatever municipality you're dealing with, I I do a lot of civil rights lawsuits where I defend the officer's actions in federal and state court. Um, and so I see a lot of trends through that as well. And then I have the opportunity to do a lot of training, both uh, in the state of New Mexico and nationally. As Jeff said, I was excited to go to HITS in 2020, and then uh, the <laughs> pandemic kind of changed that. Um, so I do specialize and have a kind of a heart for training for canine officers. My husband was a canine handler for several years at Bernalillo County. Um, and actually pretty much everybody in my family is either a police officer or a lawyer. Um, my dad was in law enforcement, my grandfather, great-grandfather, um, and my brother-in-law is actually in law enforcement. Um, so for those of you that are listening that are law enforcement, I just want to say thank you. It's You guys are part of the family, and I'm always very honored to be able to help in any way that I can. 
Um, and obviously then I approach my practice slightly differently because I have had a lot of opportunities sure. to see, to interact with officers, not just in the limited setting for litigation. And then I do take, I do try to attend training. I've attended a lot of firearms training. I've attended canine training. Um, I've done some reality-based scenario training. And so even though I'm just a lawyer, um, I do try to learn a lot about what you guys do. Um, so that's just a little bit of background. The third piece or fourth piece, I guess I want to mention briefly is um, some of you probably work for departments where you are under investigation by the Department of Justice or you might be subject to a consent decree. My hometown, the Albuquerque Police Department, has been under a consent decree since 2014 with the Department of Justice. And I uh, started last summer uh, being their lead outside litigation counsel for that case. And so, the, again, the trends that I see from criminal charges, civil cases, as well as kind of where the Department of Justice is in terms of those restrictions or the rules that we're kind of going towards for law enforcement is another, you know, just another area of how I get to serve law enforcement. Um, so just wanted to mention that because that changed from last time we talked. Yeah. And in that role there, I guess we'll, maybe we'll start there. In that role, are you employed by the city of Albuquerque or your, your firm is and then you just kind of help? navigate all the the it's a complex issue i'm sure yes um so i continue to work for a private law firm and i just contract with the city uh -huh. um and that's something that i honestly consult with departments on around this the country um sometimes they have kind of comprehensive municipal attorney's offices or city or county or parish or whatever you're looking at but occasionally they don't do their own house litigation and so we we basically come in and kind of operate like general counsel but we're still an outside law firm and i guess we'll just stay on this topic for a minute on the the consent decree if you're an agency that maybe some some people aren't too familiar with them um can you just kind of explain how how a department falls under like especially the federal consent decrees sure so what will often happen is somehow the department of justice gets alerted to what they believe is a pattern of unconstitutional conduct and you'll see it sometimes happens with like one very high-profile incident. And that's what I think happened to APD. We had a shooting in 2013 or 14 um, that generated homicide charges against two APD officers. And that got a lot of national attention. And so that brought the DOJ's, DOJ's attention to Albuquerque. And then they conducted an investigation and they concluded um, that there was a pattern. I think that's kind of what happened with Louisville is that they yeah. had the Breonna Taylor incident one profile high profile incident and then it led to an investigation um so you know you the just very briefly obviously generally states operate their own police departments or they operate at a county or town level the department of justice has jurisdiction where they believe or there's proof of a pattern of violation of the fourth amendment so anybody who has like a state ag finding of a violation of state law or somebody who's feeling like their department has a lot of violations of other state regulations, that would not trigger a Department of Justice. There is an opportunity, for example, the LA County Sheriff's Department is under multiple consent decrees, one of which I understand involves their state AG's office. So you can have a consent decree from the federal government, from the state government, and I actually handle consent decrees where a group like the ACLU um, or, you know, like BML organization 
actually files a lawsuit against the department and that results in a consent decree. So it doesn't just have to be the Department of Justice or the the state agency. It could actually be a group of private citizens that sue yeah. on behalf of members. And once that, that happens to your agency, as I understand it, things are very, very complex then. I know I talked to one agency. Um, I remember they told me that their body camera policy basically was turn the camera on, you know, when you get on the car base. And, and once they fell under it's a state consent decree, um, that body camera policy, I think the guy told me that it's now like 42 pages of saying the same yeah. thing, <laughs> yeah. but it's just ridiculous how convoluted it all gets. I, I totally agree. So what happens is that any consent decree is going to have to prove a violation of law, either federal or state law. But, but without fail, every consent decree I've ever worked on, and I've worked personally and handled them from beginning to end or to, to the conclusion, rather, of like five in New Mexico and consulted on them nationally. So they all follow the same pattern. We have this finding of a violation of law, which is a very specific thing. And then they go to remedy that and they always get more restrictive than the law. So just a really you know, brief example. The Fourth Amendment, as we know, is based upon the Graham v. Connor reasonableness standard, which means that there's very few categorical prohibitions under Fourth Amendment law. Right. The answer yeah. to everything is, is it excessive forces. It depends. You know, yeah. can you shoot an unarmed person? It depends. Were they still a threat? You know, can you use a chokehold? It depends. Was there a need to use deadly force? But then there's a distinction between those legal kind of vague definitions and when the department has to make a, a black and white policy decision. So pretty much every DOJ consent decree is going to ban the use of chokeholds, whether your department's had a history yeah. of them or not. Yeah. Um, now, under the Fourth Amendment, there's absolutely a set of facts we could concoct that's reasonable for an officer to face where yeah. the use of a chokehold would be lawful. So that's absolutely what you see with pretty much every policy is that they get very restrictive and very complex because they're giving very categorical, very black and white guidance, whereas the Fourth Amendment is about looking at a set of circumstances and kind of weighing those factors and coming to a conclusion rather than just having an absolute bar on certain yeah. things. And would I be wrong to say, I mean, in my opinion, and you know, I've never talked about this before, um, so if I'm wrong, I have no problem you telling me I am, but it seems <laughs> to me like it's a, that's these these umbrella consent decrees are the opportunity for politicians to serve some of the the outspoken people to get policies put in place that are not um i guess with the restrictive ones but i guess the people who don't like us that that want things to go away or want certain uses of force or whatever um it's just a way for them to to start serving this this highly vocal group of people and start just throwing, you know, rules onto police departments that maybe wouldn't they wouldn't have gotten before. Is that kind of a fair statement? I think that's completely fair. I mean, when you have public hearings for comment on these policies, because that's a that's a common yeah. feature of the Department of Justice's public comment. I mean, it's not going to be someone coming that says, "I think about the you know the department yeah. should use more deadly force." It's going to be people who feel very strongly that officers shouldn't use force, and sometimes they come up with pretty you know, in my mind, kind of preposterous solutions. Yeah. And you alluded to a bill that got uh, introduced in New Mexico. There was a bill that was introduced in New Mexico to basically eliminate the use of intermediate force and including canine. And in my mind, if you, and I think it bears out and you see it play out. I mean, I've probably looked at at least a thousand uses of force in my, you know, just yeah. in a, some capacity throughout my career. And I would say, 
the elimination of intermediate use of force it increases the use of deadly force because you have no option there's, there's obviously going to come a situation where somebody's armed or you don't yeah. know if they're armed or they're hostile or going hands-on is not an option and so if you have no other option to live to deliver force at a distance because you can't beanbag you can't use oc you can't use a dog all those things your only other option is deadly yeah. force and so um actually apd just released a study that i think it's a- appropriate to mention apd had 18 officer involved shootings in 2022 um and there was a concern because that was actually an increase uh, over the previous year and a significant increase if you kind of look at a an eight-year span because the department of justice began in 2014 yeah. and in looking at them what the working group found was that at least several of those officer involved shootings occurred be or potentially could have been avoided by the use of less lethal munitions yeah um now, that doesn't mean that at the time the shooting occurred, they should have used less lethal rather than yeah. deadly force. Yeah. At the time, it was a deadly force situation. But there was a lot of hesit- there was a hesitation in several of those instances where officers did not use a taser, did not use a canine, did not use um, whatever options. Yeah. And then the, the situation continued to the point yeah. where we had to use deadly force. Yeah. As a matter of fact, APD had a, a unfortunate incident um, in a joint operation with Burlington County Sheriff's Department a couple of months ago, or a little bit more than that, where an individual was barricaded inside a home and a minor was barricaded with him. The house caught on fire during the SWAT activation and the minor passed away. Um, earlier in the incident, the primary target had come out in the backyard and no less lethal force where he was used against him. He was basically allowed to re-enter. Our state AG actually found that the minor's death was preventable because if the department had used something, including the canine, to take him into custody, the primary car- target would have been in custody and that fire would have never have occurred. Now, that doesn't take into account the complexities that's sure. an arson investigation. Yeah. Um, but that's a finding that we actually had recently from our state AG. So I mean, it's it's for us that are involved in in law enforcement, and you come from a, you know, you're deep in the woods and all this. I'm sure you see it. To me, it, it it's frustrating because you take all of our tools away, and it's not going to improve things. It's going to make everything, in my opinion, worse. And and that's just one example of it to me. I I completely agree. So so as an officer, it's just important to articulate that in a reasonable way and try to give specific examples because part of my job right is advocacy and so i talk to people who make policies whether that's negotiating with the doj or talking to the you know the mayor or whatever whatever or or writing letters to the legislature so it's really important for officers if they're facing this there's this proposal you don't want to be kind of over dramatic about it and you want to be very rational um, and you don't want to say, well, it's just, you know, so-and-so, they hate the police. You you should give a concrete example. Yeah. So, like I said, I mean, let's say that you have a suspect with a knife. Um, that's a hard one for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people have a hard time with officers using deadly force against people with edge weapons. Um, because that saying, you know, you don't bring a, a knife to a gunfight. They yeah. feel like the suspect is at a disadvantage. Yeah. But officers understand that you're not going to get stabbed. I mean, that's not an option. So you have someone who's armed with a knife, you need to take them into custody because they're acting erratically, they might have warrants, um, maybe they're they're in an area where they're not allowed to be, like let's say a, a former uh, a romantic partner shows yeah. up at, at his girlfriend's house or whatever. So you just can't leave them. So that's not an option just to walk away. 
you have no option to close distance on that individual because if you do, you'll likely provoke a confrontation that will most likely lead in, into deadly force. Yeah. And as they simply stand there with no not attacking anyone, there's no justification for using deadly force. But you have to do something. And so you need a distance tool, which, you know, pepper ball, yeah. beanbag, 40, canine, those are all those are all distance tools to bring that to a successful resolution. And so that's the way that I would encourage officers to approach it is about a successful resolution, not to say you're going to get somebody killed because I hear that a lot and I yeah. don't disagree with yeah. officers. But, you know, I, again, that's kind of what some people might review, you know, view as a little bit more dramatic. You're going to get someone killed. Sure, I think the chances of a deadly confrontation between a suspect absolutely go up if you don't have less yeah. lethal options. But I would kind of characterize it more as bringing it to a successful resolution because if you do have to close distance on them and they do attack you with a knife, you're going to have to shoot them. And yeah. that's something that didn't need to happen if you had a different tool. Well, and I think explaining all these tools are the de-escalation tools that they're, you know, because every, every one of these that I read, it's like they want to get rid of the actual implement, whether it's a 40 or gas or whatever, or the dog. But then they have a whole bunch of language about we want de-escalation. But they think that these are people who think that we can magically talk to people and, and make things work. So it seems what you're saying is that, you know, being out in front of it and explaining how including dogs are actually a de-escalation tool and that you can, uh, you know, get a lot done uh, just by, by using the proper tool and de-escalating things. Absolutely. And one of the, the doctrines or the ideas that supported, if not directly by the Department of Justice, but often by the experts that they employ is the concept of a force array, which means that you have a lot of options at your disposal. You know, you don't ever want to have a shooting because you say, well, I had a taser and it was rainy. You yeah. want to say, okay, I had a taser and I had a beanbag and I had a pepper ball. You know, you always want to have multiple less lethal options and a canine is absolutely a part of that force array. Um, and the courts really, really often recognize the utility of a police canine. I mean, there's dozens of courts' opinions that say, look, when you're searching for somebody who's either a known threat or an unknown threat in the in dark or in a cramped space or, you know, in an area that a human cannot quickly search. Dogs are a great tool, yeah. and we think that it's great police have them. I mean, pretty much every circuit court has said that at some point, that dogs are an important tool. And actually, the 10th Circuit has explicitly recognized that even though, you know, having a dog bite you might be unpleasant, it's a better alternative to than a being shot. Yeah. And I want to circle back real quick to uh, the um, consent decree. One of the things I always try to tell handlers, you know, when I'm training, especially patrol dogs, and the reason why having, you know, extremely good control and good policies and having your unit, you know, really be squared away is because, as you mentioned, that that consent decree can happen to you um, from something com completely unrelated to canine. But when yes. the, when they come and they start sniffing around and doing an audit of your department, I think... I believe what they're looking for is the low hanging fruit. And I think if they get to, you know, this is a canine podcast and this is our, our, our focus here. So I always advocate for the canines to be squared away. I, I think that if you have a, a solid canine unit and good policies and good deployments, and as they're looking at your canine unit, which is going to be something that you're, that the canines always going to get looked at because these people who don't like cops do, definitely don't like police dogs. So mm -hmm. it's going to get looked at. If you can have all your ducks in a row as good as possible and better than, say, you know, other parts of your agency, 
they're going to move on to the low-hanging fruit and maybe leave you alone. So to me, it's just one more reason to, to always be ahead of all of this stuff. Absolutely. And that's why um, one of the things you need to work on specifically in canine units is really good documentation of training. Um, not just, well, we, we train on Tuesdays and it's eight hours. You know, you need more detail than that. And one of the things that the Department of Justice sometimes looks at or other areas is they get very concerned about bite ratios. Um, and so that's the concept that yeah. for every time you deploy the canine, you, you bite them. So I think sometimes handlers don't track that data very well. Um, and I think it's also important to document in some fashion the time that a canine was deployed, as in they, they got out of their car and they thought they were going to deploy it and they made a decision to do something else because yeah. that also rec- like demonstrates restraint. I think sometimes people think when they calculate a bite ratio, it's this idea that you know, your dog's off leash and it's running around and it didn't bite anybody. That's, that's not, that's not the only way you can deploy a dog. Another way to show, rest- I mean, that would be probably some type of potential training failure on the dog's part if you expected it to bite and it didn't. Um, but I think that you need to show the, the unit's restraint that even exactly. though Canaan appeared on scene, we don't bite everybody. We don't even release our dog all the time because yeah. we're highly trained officers generally that most departments have some sort of uh, experience requirement before you can go to canine right so these are officers who are experienced and make good decisions and that's one of that's a piece of evidence i think you should be able to articulate if you're under any type of investigation yeah i agree and and uh that part of that that'll help is to show that you're doing decision making scenarios in training you can yes. document those to show that you know there's a lot of times in training where it's a dog deal and then it something changes and you can articulate I put the dog away and we went to a different different way to resolve it so all good all good practices to have um, on the litigation side uh, we talked generally about I know the New Mexico had um, some legislation but from what you're saying the crazy part of the legislation just didn't didn't get any uh, lift to it at all and, and it's not going to be part of any future res- legislation this year at least Yes, at least for this year. So one of the, the primary kind of um, outliers in that legislation was the abolishment of any type of intermediate weapon, including a canine. And that was obviously gave people a lot of pause in New Mexico. And I, I'm very um, grateful and, and happy that it didn't gain any traction. Because as you pointed out, there's a handful of very outspoken people about the police. And many of them don't have an understanding of what the police do or how they function. And so dogs, you know, dog bites never look good on camera. I mean, you know, they they look awful, their injuries, the the person screams, you know, and so that's something that people have a very visceral reaction to it. They view it as very brutal, but that didn't pass. But one of the trends that I think is here to stay and is going to train train traction in a lot of states is, under Graham v. Connor, under that interpretation, every the Supreme Court has said it dozens of times, every circuit court has said it dozens of times, the availability or the use of lesser intrusive alternatives is irrelevant to the Fourth Amendment analysis. So in a traditional use of force case, you know, I've tried these before, litigated them before, you cannot introduce evidence that the officer had a taser and you can't argue the officer should have used the taser yeah. in a shooting case. Yeah. That's traditionally the lay of the land. But a lot of states are going to a concept that you have to prove de-escalation or you have to articulate why 
the amount of force you used was the least amount of force necessary. That's the language that's in our current consent decree for the Albuquerque Police Department. Now, of course, that's a greater restriction than Granby Connor, but I think it's going to wind up in a lot of states. And so I used to be very frustrated about that when people would argue it. You know, I filed, I've filed a lot of motions to exclude it or argued with investigators that that's not relevant. And it really used to bug me. Um, but it's kind of here to stay and we're just going to have to live with it. So for canine handlers, part of it's just recognizing the distance and the utility of a canine, right? So in order to use a different intermediate force option, um, canines are generally, as far as departments go and as far as how the courts look at them, you can fight a little bit about this. But in general, canines are going to fall below deadly force. But they're and they're going to be kind of on par with like a, a beanbag, a pepper ball, or a forty millimeter round. Mm-hmm. Um, some departments put them on par with a taser. Sometimes they're a little bit above a taser, but they kind of fall in that force spectrum. But they're definitely going to be above empty-handed tactics or a baton or OC spate, right? So if you're in a state where you've gone towards the necessity of de-escalation or addressing lesser intrusive alternatives, you as a canine handler are going to have to articulate why you used a canine instead of potentially a taser, OC spray, a baton, or empty-handed tactics. Well, part of that's done very simply just by a practical thing. In order to deploy pretty much every other munition, you have to be able to aim, right? Yeah, yeah. So canines, when you're deploying a target that's not like that that's in a crawl space or yeah. in the woods, literally no other options available to you because you have to aim every other option. So that's very easy to kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, check that box to say, well, why was the canine a better option? Because I I don't have to aim it. I mean, you have to point it in some sort of direction, but when you have a target, you can't locate. They're the only option. Um, Generally with canines, you're going to be in a much better position to articulate the justifying a canine. If you can articulate some type of threat, Um, it doesn't have to be a deadly threat, but some type of threat to officer safety, um, that's when canines are going to be most justified is when there's some type of threat present. So as an officer, you need to be documenting and articulating that. Yeah. As yeah. far as de-escalation, I know departments kind of do it different across the country. You know, when you have a SWAT, a lot of canines are attached to SWAT. Well, SWAT's going to have a lot of built-in de-escalation, right? Because yeah. you had announcements and yeah, orders there and, for hours. you know, all that yeah. stuff before SWAT even gets there. I mean, APD takes a little bit of time before yeah. you have to be pretty certain that they're barricaded before you even call SWAT. So for people that are attached to a SWAT team, feel pretty comfortable that you're going to be able to articulate de-escalation because uh, most SWAT teams have some built-in de-escalation. And it's just built-in by the amount of time. Part of de-escalation is time, right? Yeah. So just the amount of time it takes to activate a canine handler, even if you're not attached to SWAT, that's a de-escalation. Um, unless you're you know, working patrol and you just are the first on scene. So, you know, when we look for de-escalation, obviously there's a lot more training on that. Um, but you're, you're looking for warnings, you're looking for time, and you're looking for something other than just giving commands, right? That's, that's not de-escalation, just, just yelling at them. But yeah. trying to establish a rapport, giving them alternatives, um, you know. And so I don't think it's a bad idea for canine handlers to have some advanced critical incident. Uh, management uh, or CIT training, right? Sure. Crisis, yeah. whatever, whatever you guys call yeah. it in your state. Um, so that's probably a good thing for handlers to think about is just getting some of those tools. If they're not a required curriculum because canines just deployed as part of field services or patrol, I'd encourage officers to get that extra training because it's going to give them the tools to ensure that they are attempting to de-escalate before using their canine. 
But the sure. other point I'll make about de-escalation is that it's not obviously it's not feasible in every circumstance, nor is it legally required in every circumstance. Um, and so, if you don't use de-escalation, you really just need to focus on articulating the reason why de-escalation wasn't appropriate. Yeah. Um, so that's a trend that's not going anywhere. And there, I, there I just, probably eventually will be every state's yeah. going to have some sort of law about less lethal and de-escalation. And we're not talking at this point. Uh, when, you know, a lot of this legislation, it's not geared. I think traditionally, at the time, you know, I've been in Canada a long time. Most of the time, we've always talked about, you know, our mindset was about civil litigation and getting sued and stuff. But there's now, because of a lot of this legislation, a lot of the language and canine handlers not maybe understanding all the ramifications of it. Now I see a lot of these uh, officers getting criminally charged under this new legislation. On, and I think what you were talking about with Graham versus Connor, you know, you could be right as rain under traditional Graham versus Connor, but then if they say you, they're, they're using almost hindsight now that you should use this or that. And I see different places where officers are now being indicted and charged. Are you seeing a lot of that too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I used to, when I teach, I, I used to say, you know, when I got with, when I started dating my husband, my biggest fear was that I get a doc knock on the door one day that he got hurt at work, right? Yeah. But then I represented an officer who was charged with homicide. And I'm like, that was worse. Yeah. I just got to yeah. say. Um, so, yes, the the massive increase in criminal prosecution against officers, it's it's absolutely a trend. And I do agree with you. Some states, New Mexico for a while didn't really have a lot of interpretation of its criminal statute for officers. And so they were just basically getting charged with battery and we would be arguing under a Graham standard. But you're correct that some states are explicitly passing legislation that diverges from Graham in a criminal aspect. And I'm just going to mention a couple things because I just really want officers to understand this about the criminal liability in pretty much every state that I'm familiar with. The state has no obligation to provide you with criminal defense for actions that are related to your to your on-duty conduct. You're on your own as far as criminal defense goes. Now, you probably make too much money as an officer who's gainfully employed to qualify for the public defender's office. Mm -hmm. So officers really need to consider what their options are if they do get criminally indicted. Now, a lot of times unions will offer some protection either through purchasing insurance for officers or they do some sort of pool yeah. where the union itself pays for it. But officers that are at a smaller department, I mean, you can literally just Google officer insurance. I'm not hey, plugging any particular sure. company, sure. but that's that's probably an area where I see a lot of officers are unprepared. You know, they don't understand that the city or the state's not going to pay for a criminal offense. They don't know what the limits of the union representation are, or maybe they haven't become a union member. So that's something I encourage every officer to look into right away. Am I covered by the union if I get criminally charged? If I'm not, what are my options? Um, I think that's because, a great point because I think a lot of officers are used to that the um, the city's going to take care of the civil pro problem. Right. Um, but they're not thinking about the criminal charges because in, you know, more than 30 years of being a cop, the criminal stuff doesn't happen that often. But I think I think it is now. So I think that's great advice to really check yourself right now and see where what are you going to do if you need an attorney? Because I would imagine even if it's not a homicide charge, if it's just a, you know, like a felony assault or anything else that they're going to come up with. What am I going to end up spending out of pocket on that $100,000? Yeah, it's going to be very expensive because one of the things officers are absolutely going to have to do in any, any sort of defense is they're going to have to hire an expert, right? Yeah. 
a normal jury is not going to understand how you deploy a police canine, what the tactics are, the training the officer went into. And that's all because, you know, that I would say that I think I feel pretty confident that most courts are going to consider that part of it. Right. I mean, it's not just going to be a straight up battery because if it's a battery and there's no defense to it, it's just a rude, it's a touching and a rude anger in some manner. Well, your dog is going to do that, right? That's a, that's a battery. (laughs) So, so you're going to have to, you're absolutely going to committed a battery. You're going to have to have a justification for it, which means you're going to have to have an expert. Um, and you know, in my state, I think there's, there's probably three or four people who have a ton of experience doing eh, maybe a little but less than 10 for sure for a state of 2 million. So I think that the people that specialize in this in terms of the legal defense are very limited. Um, and so you you if you have a really complex case you may not feel comfortable just using a, a traditional criminal defense attorney i mean you may even need to spend more money for like an out-of-state attorney yeah. to get them to come do it now this isn't the part where i hand out my telephone number no. and tell everybody <laughs> to call me but but um but you might consider that that this is a complex case yeah. that a normal criminal defense attorney probably won't have experience with i mean most criminal defense attorneys don't do a lot of justification stuff it's right it's uh yeah. oh you violated my rights you know, you didn't get the evidence, things like that. But the, but you're going to have to have an expert. You're going to have to potentially potentially have an uh, experience, you know, read expensive uh, yes. an attorney. Um, and so, are, you, are you also seeing what I've seen here in our state? And I've seen it both locally and on. Uh, we have a, an agency here who the state AG went after it's a political case. And they charged the officers and the paramedics involved in it. I believe they, they indicted them with like. 40 types of charges and in our local area on a police shooting they indicted an officer for i believe six seven eight nine felonies something like that where um on a regular homicide charge they absolutely have a policy of not stacking charges but they seem to love to stack the charges against the cops so does that just further complicate the whole issue when they're going out of their way to make a political statement yeah, they can. And I do think these cases are often political cases. I mean, you see a lot of special prosecutors that get appointed. There's like extra resources devoted to them. Um, they they are often a way for a politician to show they are tough on the police. And yeah. that's that sounds like a very good thing to run on nowadays. Right. Yeah. Um, and even people who are a little bit more conservative, I mean, they're not, they're probably not going to run on a platform of like, well, let the police do whatever they want. Right. I and mean, pretty much everybody, both parties are going to be advertising police accountability as part of their campaign yeah. so absolutely and i think that these these cases are unusual they're prosecuted in an unusual way and i do think that they're uh, it's it's sad because i don't want to see this happen but really what they're struggling with is there's not a lot of precedent and i think that's why they stack charges is because you know there's not really good legal doctrines for this like yeah. battery's not a great crime for excessive force uh, because like I said, it, it's committed and then you have this justification piece of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and obviously that's happened in States, but you're going to kind of see an explosion of either legislation or case law interpretation of officer justifications. And for now, a lot of States still are relying on Graham. So it matters until the case law and the legislation kind of catches up with it. Um, one of the things I really don't want to see departments go to or States go to is a violation of department policy. Um, because then you're going to disincentivize departments from passing policies that are robust, yeah, right? Yeah. You're going to write, you're going to have the most bare bone policy ever because you're terrified that if there's a finding violation of your policy, you're going to be criminally indicted. Yeah. And so for now, most, most people are not, and the, on the flip side, 
you could write a very low bar for your officers. I mean, if your officers are only going to get criminally charged, they violate your policy and write a really broad policy, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so, so I don't think there's a lot of appetite for legislators or for uh, the courts to just use the policy as the only mechanism. But some people want that to be considered. So that's something to think about if you're in your department and you're an administrator, is how far do you want to go beyond Graham, knowing that there's a potential that that policy becomes the standard for yeah. both civil or criminal liability. Yeah. And even if it's not the standard, especially on the civil side, it'll at least be looked at during the court process, won't it? Ordinarily, no, um, actually, under okay. the Fourth Amendment standard, because it's purely an objective reasonableness standard. Traditionally, you're able to exclude evidence of a policy because it's irrelevant to the objective reasonableness standard. I've been successful with that um, in my circuit, at least. Maybe some people yeah. would be surprised to hear that. But yeah, in general. But yes, I mean, it's it's probably inescapable uh, that your policy matters at yeah. some point yeah. for sure. Well, there's a lot going on, obviously, and like I said, uh, it's funny, since uh, 2019, the world's changed a lot between uh, the COVID stuff and then uh, just the political winds have obviously turned 180 degrees, in my opinion, against the police. I, I think it'll change again once people are tired of all the crime, um, but I think, you know, we've went over quite a few things just about, you know, what what's going on and how to avoid it. If you were talking to an agency right now and, and an agency you, didn't, you had no familiarity with, what are some of the things that you would kind of look at with the agency and what were some of the advice you'd give them, you know, to avoid some of these pitfalls that you're seeing? The number one doc, the number one piece for avoiding pitfalls or liability is documentation. Um, we can't rely on word of mouth for training or for policy. So you, you, and if you haven't updated your policy in, in even like five years, you need to have an attorney look at it and not just any attorney, somebody who actually has, or has the, has either the time or the experience to research this, but your policy shouldn't sit for years untouched. Um, it should be looked at. You also need to make sure that there's documentation of training, um, you can't just be like, oh, Bob's taught here for forever. He teaches the same thing. There needs yeah. to be a lesson plan. I would recommend maybe recording some training um, because you, you are going to fall back on that and you're you're absolutely going to need it. So documentation is the number one thing, documenting your policy, documenting your training, documenting your deployments. The other biggest piece of advice that I would give to officers is that officers often articulate or discuss their use of force with the idea that they're talking to another officer, right? So they yeah. talk to investigators because they're another cop and they talk to them like they're another cop. Every officer needs to remember that your ultimate audience for any analysis of your use of force is a non-cop. It is a civilian. Whether that's going to be the AG that's going to review it to see if they're going to press charges or you go all the way to a criminal trial, it is a non-cop that you're explaining force to you. So you need to make it as clear and as simple and non-jargon full as possible. So think about who your ultimate audience is for any documentation. It's not other cops. It's civilians. Yeah. And picture, yeah. I tell you know, I'm, I'm lucky my whole family is law enforcement, so I don't think anybody in my family was, like, faced with criticism before, before coming to cop. <laughs> but I know people who have, like, that aunt that they go to the functions, and every time they're at Thanksgiving, they're like, why do you guys have to use so much force? Yeah. Think about writing a response to them that they would understand. So maybe officer safety is probably not the top priority of those people. What about safety for the suspect or peaceful resolution yeah. of things? Yeah. 
So those are those are kind of the key things is documentation and knowing who your audience is. And and obviously consistent training and uh, you know and I I think do you recommend having agencies have outside people come and look at their their policies and what they're doing? You know, like maybe once in a while have a at least a another agency trainer come over and look and see what the canine unit's doing or hire a company or something. Is that is that money well spent or is that not necessary? I, I don't know that it's always necessary because I think um, this is something that's been monetized. I see a lot of yeah. kind of would-be experts, even in the DOJ stuff, where, where people come in and they hire someone that was like a lieutenant in a uh, 200-man agency, and they're coming and they're writing SWAT SOPs for yeah. a 1,500-man you know, yeah. department. Sure. So if you know they're reputable, then absolutely, any sort of expert that's reputable. But don't go out and hire someone just because they're a lawyer or just because they've been a, they've been a consulting expert yeah, somewhere. So do your homework. Um, but I think that it paying them, not paying them, however, paying them a lot, paying them a little, if you have somebody who's reputable and has experience in that area, outside eyes are helpful. Yeah, and I think does it does kind of insulate you a little bit when – you can show, you know, hey, we're trying to be, you know, again, when somebody's just sniffing around, if they want to, you know, attack you in some way, at least you can show we're trying to do the best we can here. So we're. Yeah, I do think that it like transparency. I mean, I think you're probably going to raise more eyebrows if you go, no, no one's allowed to look at our policies. Yeah. We don't want any help. Right. So I agree yeah. with you there. That's a good point. Yeah. Any other uh, advice you would give an agency if they came to you right now? Uh. No, that, that would be the yeah. biggest thing. I do think all, all canine handlers should take a course on either persuasive writing or specifically articulating use of force. Officers are very poor sometimes of documenting their reasoning. Um, they will put what they saw and what they did very good. Those are things they have down because they have to yeah. do that for like a criminal case. But the why of why they do things, that's probably the thing that's missing the most from reports. So just, again, knowing who your audience is and what question are you answering. Yeah. The question is not what happened. It's why it happened. And that's definitely something that I see supervisors maybe not doing a good enough job when they're approving these reports. You know, they, they should be kicking these back when, when they're they're not complete that way. Absolutely. I think supervisors are trained and, and historically in police departments, right, we're, we're trained to write the who and the what and yeah. the where and uh, to get the elements of like a crime in. But we don't think about our own thought process and documenting that. Yeah. Can we touch real base, touch quick uh, uh, base on um, body body cameras and what how is that affecting all of the stuff we're talking about? They're here to stay, obviously. Uh, I know it for a little while that dog handlers didn't have them. Then they did, you know, they, I think every cop now has a body camera. I personally think in my own agency, what I saw is it, it saved more cops than it hurt them. But what's your stand on that? And, and as, as they're getting rolled out, especially with now, I think what the thing that is changing is that people like police dogs, but a lot of times they don't see exactly how, how we use them. And now there's a lot of video of that coming out. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just that people don't understand. They don't. They, there was a visceral reaction that you mentioned earlier of a dog biting a person. So I think that um, when we're looking at a dog bite and we're thinking, you know, the dog's well-trained, he's doing this and everything else, we're not normal. And the normal people that look at it don't like what they see. So is there anything that you recommend as far as, you know, the, the body cameras are here and obviously there's lots of... Uh, states where the body camera footage is going to be released 
pretty quickly. So anything that we should be doing on that? Well, um, first of all, remember that you're on camera. Don't say things that are silly. Don't do dumb things. Um, it's funny because I think they become so commonplace. Sometimes officers forget they're on camera. Um, now, as they become more ubiquitous, um, people are sometimes I have problems with fellow agencies where one agency be recording, the other one wouldn't. So yeah. certain officers aren't being used to being on camera. Yeah. So that's the first thing is always remember your camera's on. Um, the second thing is, is that the the deployment what I see because canines are deployed at a distance, they very rarely capture the justification for deploying a canine. Um, that, so, so please don't ever write a report that says, please see my video. Yeah. No, you never yeah. give up your narrative. Um, so that would be probably something for officers to think about is that your camera is very rarely going to capture the justification for the deployment. It may capture okay the actual deployment like in terms of what happened once you let the dog go and it may not because we use them in uh, uh, areas that are hard to access and at night and stuff like that so you need to make sure that just because your camera captures again what happened it won't capture why um and i would suggest to officers that if they have the time and the capacity is that after every canine deployment they write their report as best they can off memory and then watch their video and try to fill in like any gaps, but don't watch the video and try to write a summary of it. I see some officers do that. The first thing they do is they sit down and they watch their video. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever look at your video, but you should at least have some coherent thought in your mind of what you believe you perceived because quite often what you perceived is not what's reflected on the video. Um, and that's a very common occurrence that quite frankly, we can't get into here. I teach a whole four hour yeah, class yeah. on that. Um, but, but just, just keeping that in mind is, um, you need to, my like very practical step would be, is that try to write your report. Like it's the old days and you didn't have a camera yeah. before you watch your camera because it'll start tainting the details of what you actually saw versus what's on video. Okay. Um, and, and just being aware of what you pointed out, Jeff, they're just going to look bad. The guy, the suspect's going to be screaming. There's yeah. going to be blood. The dog's going to be barking. And so just knowing that they look bad and being prepared for that, but articulating why that's actually as violent and chaotic as that is, that's a more peaceful end than potentially what could have come. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think there's that. And I also think that, um, you know, making sure that you don't linger with medical. Um, I see they just, it just feels like forever. I'm sorry. You don't take too long to get medical there. Yeah, yeah. Obviously you have officer safety concerns, but that's something that just is like excruciating. Yes. <laughs> they play it and he's bleeding and he's screaming and medical takes forever. And sometimes that's not within the control of the officers, but just keeping that in mind. But I guess that does, I'll throw that in real quick. I know that we like an incident we had here locally. Um, do, do something, even if you're not a paramedic while you're waiting for it, you know, at least, least give the opinion uh the appearance that you kind of care you know so you yes. know we're do something you know show that while you're waiting for the ambulance uh, nothing nothing i think looks as bad as everybody then just letting the guy lay there and bleed and high five each other for you know what, what was a good job you know but right I, I agree so yes yes i totally agree with that <laughs> well i think we've gone over a lot of really good stuff and i appreciate i i, I apologize to you i bounced you around a few times with my schedule um, and I know you're a busy person, so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on here and share all this valuable information. And, uh, you know, hopefully get you on. Again, if we get questions on this, I'll bring you back on and we can kind of go over some of our uh, questions from our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And then, like I said, you know, my heart's really with the law enforcement community. So for everybody that's listening, thank you for your service and stay safe. Well, okay. Thank you very much. Have a good day.
Well, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of Hits Canine Radio. I hope you enjoyed uh, listening to Taylor. If you want to hear more about her classes or want to meet her in person, you can uh, check out uh, our hitscanine.net webpage. It gives a schedule of which uh, days she's going to be teaching in Scottsdale this year. So Hits uh, 2023 is in Scottsdale. Taylor and a lot of other excellent instructors are going to be there teaching three full days. We've got five classes going on at a time. Lots to pick from. You set your own schedule, pick and choose the classes you want. A lot of different topics. Uh, We try to break up the schedule so that no matter what your uh, discipline or what your interest is, we can keep you busy every day, all day long with uh, lots of different classes. The biggest complaint we get a lot of times from people who come to HITS is that they didn't go get a chance to go to all the classes they came from. So that's why we repeat some classes uh, year to year here and there, and then we always try to have a whole lot of new stuff. So if you went last year, there's stuff you didn't get to go to, you can check it out, plus all the new classes. If you've never been, I think you're really going to like it. So go to hitsk9.net, check out what we're doing. Uh, and if, as always, if you want to uh, email me, just email me at jeff at hitsk9.net. Thanks for listening and be safe out there.